All right. So if there are any questions or anything that pops up, this is going to be more of an open forum, bless you, an open forum for tonight. Uh, but first thing I want to get to is the first question. So uh, Kyle, if you would hit it. In order to address it, I have to first go back over creationism. So who wants to give me a quick note card definition of creationism? You just shout it out. I don't care. It's fine. We're not in class. Almost. A little bit too specific. Creationism is any, at all, any form of some deity making the universe. There are creationism theories for all the religions. We specifically are talking, of course, here about uh, the Judeo-Christian creationism, as, as in the Genesis 1 account, like you said, Hannah. But it is a more general term. So if you hear it, don't take for granted that they're talking about Christianity or Judaism. They could be talking about something else. We're at the university. There's a lot of people here who believe a lot of things. They're from all over the world, many cultures. So just try to keep that in mind. You know, don't automatically think this is what it is. So with creationism, there come really three flavors with it. The first one is uh, what I alluded to last time, young earth creationism. So who wants to give me a, a quick summary, if you remember from last time, or something you know already? What is young earth creationism? God created the earth in six literal days. Okay. The earth is only like 6,000. Yeah, sh- sure, yeah. We can be a little loose with the numbers. Exactly. So young earth creationism is God, as he said in scripture, created the universe, not just the earth, the universe, in six days, and rested on the seventh. Six literal 24-hour days. And consequently, the universe, or Earth, is only around seven, excuse me, six to 10,000 years old, depending on how you interpret some gaps in the Old Testament genealogies and whatnot. Okay? Now, oddly enough, this is the one you probably heard. Did anybody remember the Ken Ham, Bill Nye creationism evolution debate that happened some years ago? Oh, I see some heads nodding here. Yeah, iffy. Yeah. I actually didn't watch it. Um, I forgot why. I probably had a final or something. Uh, but anyways, that Ken Ham is a young earth creationist. Okay, that, that's his stance. Oddly enough, young earth creationism is the statistically the smallest sect of creationism believers, if you will. Statistically, the least number of Christians, proclaiming Christians on a survey at least, believe in young earth creationism. However, they are some of the most vocal because they are extremely passionate about what they believe. Um, many times, this, these are the people that you'll run into who get extremely upset when we talk about things like the age of the Earth being around four, a little over 4 billion years old, or the universe being 13.8 billion years old, or dinosaurs existing hundreds of millions of years old. These are some of the people that you know, might get their feathers rough a little bit because, no, 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 no the Earth is only 6,000 years old. That's what the Bible says. Because that is my literal interpretation of on the first day, on the second day, on the blank day. Okay? So there we go. Young Earth creationism. Cool. Next up, we have old earth creationism. Still creationism, but instead of young earth, it's old earth. I bet you know what this one's about, right? So old earth creationism is saying that, you know what? The earth looks to be about over 4 billion years old. Yeah, the earth probably is over 4 billion years old. Why would our science tell us anything wrong, right? These things work really well everywhere else. The same science tells us the Earth is this old. The same science tells us that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. 
It's not some conspiracy that scientists are trying to undermine Christianity and saying that these things are, the, are this old. That's not their goal, I promise. I'm one of them, okay? I'm a scientist who uses this data. It's just that's what it says. And so an old earth creationism, uh, an old earth creationist would say, yeah, the earth is four billion years, or over four billion years old. However, there are two variants here. First off is a thing called gap theory. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a really big statement, if you think about it. How big are the heavens? You ever thought about that? How, how big is space? It took three days for our uh, Saturn V rocket to get to the moon. Three days. One-way trip. Three days back. You know how, fa- how fast light is? Light's the fastest thing in the universe. 300,000 kilometers every single second. 300,000 kilometers every second. It can get to the moon in about one and a half seconds. It can get to the sun in eight minutes. The closest galaxy to our Milky Way is over 100 million light years away. So it takes the fastest thing in the universe, hundreds of millions of years, to get to the next closest thing in the universe. Another galaxy with other stars and stuff. That's the closest galaxy. We've seen things. We've seen galaxies and stars that are billions of light years away. My research at the university actually involves watching galaxy groups and clusters, galaxies crashing into other galaxies and merging and ripping each other apart. And these systems are four, five billion light years away. God created the heavens and the earth. An old world creationist would say, a lot can happen in that one verse, okay? Who's to say God didn't use the natural laws of physics that he invented twisted up the clock, if you will, in the right way, and then let it go, knowing exactly what the outcome would be, and watching his creation unfold. That's what an old earth creationist would say. And this gap theory is the idea that all the universe did its cool thing, the sun formed, the planets formed around it, earth got ready, and when earth was ready for life, God stepped into history and created life, as we read in the account in Genesis. So life is special in all cases. I want to make sure you're clear of that. Life is very special in all of these creationism accounts, or theories, I should say. Okay, so that's gap theory. There was a gap of time between God created the heavens and the earth and God made things, like creatures and critters and peoples and plants and stuff. Okay, next up. We have day-age theory. This is the other big camp of old earth creationists that say... On the first day, on the second day, on the third day, as you see, that word day, and I alluded to this last week, that word day in Hebrew can be translated in a few different ways. It could mean 24-hour day. Yeah, it's it's used that way in the Bible elsewhere. The exact same word is also used in the Bible to describe a long period of time, much more than a day, years, in fact, decades. So which one is it in Genesis? Is it talking about 24-hour days, or is it talking about some 
era, some longer period of time where in this time period, this is the notable thing that happened. In this time period, this is the notable thing that happened. Each day, in poetic terms, is an age of the universe developing. And hence, you can very easily fill in the 13.8 billion year lifespan of the universe if you look at it that way. So that's the third. The fourth is theistic evolution. Again, I alluded to this last week as well. Theistic evolutionists will say that the theory of evolution, or modern evolutionary synthesis as it's known today, happened. That's how life came to be, because that's what science says. We trust science enough that, yeah, that's what happened. But we still believe that life is too special to happen by chance. The math just doesn't work. I told you this last week, right? This the stupid odds of life happening, the simplest form of life. You know, you have to, the odds are about the same as if you, on your birthday, won the lottery, got in a plane, got in a plane crash, jumped out, parachute didn't work, got struck by lightning, hit by meteorite three times before you hit the ground, actually hit the ground and lived. And then happened to the person next to you at the same time for the next two and a half months, every day without fail. Okay. That was from, and again, that wasn't me, some crackpot creationist, come up with that. No, no, it was the computer science department of University of North Carolina using the biological models of the biology department of University of North Carolina back in 2015. Okay? So a theistic evolutionist would say, evolution happened, I'll give you that, scientists. However, it's still too special. God orchestrated it. God guided the process the whole way because there's no way it could happen by itself. It's too improbable. Theistic evolution, oddly enough, is the most popular, statistically speaking, platform, or the most popular theory of creationism that Christians that check boxes on surveys would say. This one is the most popular. I'm not saying it's right or not, it's just the most popular. Take it, take it as you will. I will not tell you what I believe because that's not why I'm here. Okay, so then, we have those creationism things going on. Now to the question. Go and hit the next one, Kyle. I believe the question said, or the, the statement more so, said, uh, could I talk about carbon dating and dinosaurs? Yeah, man, let's talk about dinosaurs. Woo, dinosaurs are awesome. Okay, so radiometric dating. Who here is familiar with that term? Heard it before? Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, okay, okay, just about a little more than half of you, cool. Uh, carbon dating, anybody ever heard that term? A few more. Okay, those are the same thing. So, carbon, <laughs> carbon dating is a specific form of radiometric dating. Okay? Uh, now, they're not talking about, you know, uh, two scientists who really like each other or anything like that. We're talking about... Um, uh, that was horrible. I had to do it. You know I had to do it. So, there are radioactive atoms in the universe. Radioactive in the sense of they're unstable. Uranium, one of the most popular, right? Uh, this, you know, power plants, nuclear power plants will use uranium, uh, uranium-infused fuel rods is what they're called. And the atom itself is too big. It's unstable. The atom is trying to fly apart, and it will spontaneously break itself apart in what's known as a beta decay. And when that atom breaks apart, it releases a ton of energy, like gamma rays, little particles shoot off like crazy, and we can capture that energy and use it to make electricity, which is really, really cool. I mean, kudos to people who figured that out without dying. 
Because radiation, oh, that's radiation. That energy that's released when the atom breaks apart, that's radiation. That's that nasty stuff that gives you cancer and turns your DNA into Swiss cheese, okay? So, we can use the rate of decay, how quickly these atoms break apart, as a measure for how long a thing has existed. So, say you have, uh, let's use this one right here. You see you have a block of potassium, like it's in bananas, right? You know, potassium. Did you know potassium is radioactive? Yeah, your bananas are radioactive. You could technically die from radiation poisoning if you ate too many bananas. See, the next thing you're supposed to do is ask me, how many bananas would you have to eat, Lucas? Thank you. I'm glad you asked that question, Stephen. Let's just say you would die from your stomach exploding long before you got enough radiation from potassium from bananas, okay? Uh, you would have to eat a... Anybody here like Donkey Kong? You know that mound of bananas that he gets at the end of the game? Yeah, that's like what we're talking about. Eat all of those at once, okay? But it is still radioactive, which means it wants to turn into something else. Argon, actually. It wants, it, potassium is unstable. It wants to turn into argon, break apart a little bit, turn into argon. We know the rate at which this occurs. If you have a block of potassium, in about one billion years, half of that potassium will have turned into argon. It's super slow, but we've measured it. We've actually measured it. Scientists are really good at what they do, guys. Like, understand that. Scientists are extremely good at what they do. They're not, most, of, most all of them are not out to crush your religious hopes and dreams, okay? They're there to learn about the world. And talk, if you encounter anyone who's interested in science, talk to them that way. Because that's what they're interested in. That's what they want to know. They want to know how the universe works. This is one of the ways it works. Uranium is another one. Uranium wants to be lead. So, we can measure how long that takes, and we can date a rock based on how much uranium is left in it to see how long it's been sitting there and how old it is. With me? With me so far on how that works? Okay, cool. So, carbon dating is a specific isotope of carbon known as carbon-14. It has two extra neutrons in it, okay? Like protons and neutrons make up a nucleus of an atom. It has two extra neutrons. Carbon-14 does not want to be carbon-14. It wants to be nitrogen for some reason. So, every 5,700 years or so, you can expect half of a block of carbon-14 to spontaneously become nitrogen. Why is carbon-14 interesting, you may ask? Well, it's because it's in plants. It kind of is radioactive, just really small, yeah. Now, why is it important that it's in plants? Well, animals eat plants. Animals have bones. Bones get fossilized. We can measure the amount of carbon-14 that is left in the bones of a fossil to determine how long that fossil has been sitting there. That's the simple, that's just a really simple process, how it works. There are some errors on it. But by and large, it's a pretty good measure. Other than a few flukes here or there that you'll hear about, which many young Earth creationists will tout saying, we got this, we cut a limb out of a tree, a very live tree, 
carbon dated it and said, this tree is 18,000 years old. It's because it's true. It actually happened. What they didn't tell you is that they messed up their calculations when they did it. But because that particular young earth creationist was so excited about this result, they didn't do their homework. By and large, radiometric dating is quite accurate. So there are errors here and there, but it's quite accurate. Things look to be as old as, as, old as science says it is. Now, as I said, I didn't say that they are as old as, they say, as it says it is. I said they look to be 4, 4 billion years old. It looks to be 13.8 billion years old. Why do I say this? Because, let me ask you a question. Let's say God in six days made the entire universe and everything works great. And we're here today. We good? Now, let's say that God used physics and over 13.8 billion years made everything as we see it today and we're here. Could we tell the difference between this universe and this universe right now? Could, how would we know what God did in the beginning when we weren't there, right? You, you, a few people are laughing. Yeah, we can't tell the difference. God's good at what he does, guys, okay? It, work, it would work here and it would work here. Which one are we in? I don't know. Does it change the gospel? Does it change what Christ did for you? Does it change who God is? Does it change how you are to respond to what God has done for you? So, don't get caught in this trap. It's worthy to talk about. It's worthy to to discuss and to test your brain and to think, how could God have done this? But remember what's most important, guys. It's Christ and Him crucified. Okay? So, now that we got radiometric dating, dinosaurs. Here we get the fun part. <laughs> dinosaurs. Did dinosaurs exist? I think so. We see fossils everywhere. Why would God put dead bones in a rock to trick us? Right? I mean, come on. These things probably existed. Now, if you're an old earth creationist, everything's fine. Dinos existed a long time ago. We exist now. Earth's really old, sure. We have really cool fossils to look at now and to think what T-Rexes look like and what they ate. Yeah, so I saw that, Hannah. I saw that, Hannah. I saw that. All right, so. Now, if you're a young Earth creationist, though, the Earth didn't exist hundreds of millions of years ago. How do you reconcile that? Well, if you happen to be a young Earth creationist, let me give you a little tidbit. This isn't reported very much in... uh, the scientific journals, but it happened nonetheless. I double-checked. About, I was going to say five, six years ago, there were dinosaur bones found that still had, get this, still had soft tissue. It wasn't completely fossilized. What? Did you, did you catch that? They found a dinosaur bone that was partially fossilized. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that the bone isn't as old as we think it is. Or it could mean fossilization is an extremely difficult process. Not sure, but it happened. Also, another fun fact. Dinosaur footprints are a big deal, right? 
these cool little footprints everywhere. It was also recently found. Dinosaur footprints, about yay big. Little three-toed, you know, you know Ducky off of uh, The Land Before Time, anybody? Yeah, kind of looked like those, like, a, a, like an adolescent version of Ducky. And they were in a riverbed, boop, 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 following. Do you want to know what was inside the footprint? A human footprint. Tracking the dinosaur. Take it as you will. Okay? So, just going to show, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the information. I'm, gonna t- I'm not going to tell you what's right or what's wrong. Okay? So, dinos rock. They're awesome. When did they exist? I don't know. But it's still really fun to talk about them because they're, they're just, they're amazing. They're just amazing. Okay, if you have, whoever it was, um, if, you're, if you're brave and later want to talk to me about more dino stuff, I have more fun tidbits, but I want to move on. Uh, okay, so, next thing. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. Okay. Let's hop to the, hop to the next thing. Now, uh, fun, just pick that up. Okay. <laughs> now. Oh, man, the worst case scenario just exploded everywhere. Okay, so. I left you guys with a pretty somber story last week, and it was a true story of both of my grandfathers dying within a year of each other, one due to fungal meningitis, which is a, uh, a type of disease that only about one in a million people get, and he died from it. Uh, my other grandfather, uh, shortly afterwards, uh, uh, got throat cancer, and he also died later on. And I asked you, why would a good God, why would an all-powerful God Why would an all-knowing God, who supposedly loves me and loves them, let this happen? Why? This is known as the problem of evil, which is one of the most powerful, the most visceral, emotional objections that someone could have about specifically the God of the Bible. And it is a powerful argument. It's very powerful. So let me lay it out for you. One, let's assume that God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, can do whatever he wants to. And he is omnibenevolent, or all-good. He is the definition of good and love. Okay, with me so far? Would you agree that those are three key characteristics of the God of the Bible? Okay. Cool. If God were all-powerful, he could stop any evil from happening. Couldn't he? It's the definition of omnipotent. He could could do anything he wants to. He can stop evil. He can stop Hitler before Hitler was a thing. He could do it. Three, if God were omniscient, he would know when evil was about to occur and he could stop it before it happened. He would never be surprised. Four, if God is omnibenevolent or all-loving, he would want to stop evil. Because he's good. Six, evil exists. Right? Does evil exist in this world? Wonderful. We've arrived at a logical contradiction. Either God 
doesn't know it's about to happen, doesn't care that it happens, or is too weak to stop it. Therefore, your God is an impossibility. That is the problem of evil. I'm seeing some, some frowns here. Anybody want to talk to me? How are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? Are y'all following? You following kind of what I said and how that lays out? Seriously, well, tell, tell me. Somebody, somebody brave, speak up. What do, you, what do you think? What are you feeling right now? doesn't even have to be a complete thought. I don't care. This is just a sounding board. Why? No, for real, why? I don't know, it's just... Am I wrong? Is anything I said unreasonable? No. I told you it was powerful. This is a powerful argument and one that deserves an answer. Would you, wouldn't you agree? I have two for you. I'm not going to tell you which one is right or if any. This is a philosophical argument. So people still talk about this. But for most scholars, this question has been answered satisfactorily, even atheistic scholars. So first up, let me ask you a question. In your opinion, biblically, what is the greatest good that has ever happened or that will ever happen in the history of humanity? Huh? Christ. Let me paint this story for you. A God who loves his creation is spurned and rejected by them. Continually he reaches out over and over again, calling them back to himself, yet every time when they show a glimpse of wanting him, a glimpse of recognizing how much he cares for them, they turn their back once again, spurn him over and over and over and over and over until finally he says, I will finish this. I will send my son. I will show them who I am through him. They will see me in Jesus. A few do. But many take him, call him evil, and murder him. But in an incredible twist, a eucatastrophe, as it's, uh, yes, you know it's coming, Stephen, a eucatastrophe, it's, a, it's an a, a unexpected sudden turning of events for the good, as opposed to a catastrophe, a turning for the bad. God uses the instruments of evil, murder, to bring about one of the most glorious moments, if not the most glorious moments in all of time. The redemption of his people. No other way it could have been done to bring his loved back. That he himself would pay their death sentence. He himself would take their suffering. He himself would die the death they deserved, live the life they never could, and adopt them as co-heirs with his own son, Jesus Christ. How good is that? What an incredible story of love, of grace, of mercy, of acceptance, of adoption. How great a good that is. 
And so we have arrived at the first logical defense of God from the problem of evil, known as the greater good argument. It goes something like, there's a few versions of this, but it goes something like, God allows certain evils to occur so that a much greater good that normally, that would not have occurred otherwise, now can be. Could Christ have paid the ransom for our sins and redeemed us if he had not been crucified? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, in Romans, it says that the wages of sin is death. That's God speaking to us. The wages of sin is death. Have we sinned? If God is to be consistent, that means we owe death. We are owed death, in fact. It's just, again, in this eucatastrophe, it wasn't our death. It was his own son's death. Again, how great a good is that? So, this argument appeals to that. That through some evil that is permitted by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God, a greater glorious good is brought forth. How are we doing? Are we good so far? That's one, that's one defense for it that's pretty successful. All right, second one. This is the one that is the most philosophically and intellectually sound. It's called the free will argument. Let me ask you a question. What did you eat for breakfast today? Cool. I drank milk. Yep. Okay, none. Cool, nothing. Just, you're tough, man. Panca- oh, man, I'm jealous now. Okay. Cool, cool. Um, did you go to class today? If you had class? Cool. Did you choose to do that? Could you have chosen to go and go to Six Flags instead? Right? Yeah? Could you have chosen to eat cereal instead of pancakes? Yeah. I mean, it's a silly example, but the common Joe or Jane on the street would say, yeah, I've got free will. I can choose what I do or what I don't do. There are consequences, but I could technically, I could jump off that cliff if I wanted to. It's a bad idea, but I could choose to do it, right? So the free will argument says, the reason evil exists is not because God can't stop it. It's not because God doesn't know it's happening. It doesn't, it's not because God doesn't want it to happen. It's instead, God has given his creation, us, the ability and the freedom and the power to choose what we do and reap the consequences thereof. So the evil that exists in the world is a result of the free choices of sinful man. It explains a lot of evil. Logically, it explains a lot of evil. People choosing to be evil. It's as simple as that. This argument actually is so powerful, logically, that, like I said, most scholars believe this is solved. This was the one that did it. You'll find very few secular philosophy um, professors that will argue this. There are some, but very few do, because they're like, yep, that's pretty airtight. Again, philosophically. We're not, not talking about theologically, but philosophically, logically, this works too well. So there you go. Two strong defenses, not by me, but by society. Society has said these are strong defenses. 
for why evil exists in the world and God still being God. Okay, this is so important, so I want to make sure if there are anything, any questions you have, anything like you want to clarify, um, any other angles you want to explore with this. Mm-hmm. In the argument saying, why doesn't God stop evil? Yes. Uh, like you said, a lot of evil is explained by humans choosing to do something evil. Mm-hmm. So in stopping evil, all evil, there comes a point where that also includes stopping us and dealing with us. It's very true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, that tackles the problem of like, that choice. Uh huh. Yeah, give an example. Ah, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, what you were, you're getting, you're, you actually were repealing this part a little bit. There are, by definition, two types of evil. Moral evil and natural evil. Natural evil being defined as exactly what you said. Things that cause suffering that are natural in occurrence. Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes. That one hits close to home. Diseases. Right? They're, no, they're not anybody's fault. It just happens. Why do those exist? Well, there are a whole other set of arguments involving... No, there are. If you want to know about them, come talk to me later, but I've got time here. Um, there are other arguments that defend that as well. Um, some of them appeal to... Uh, we see in the Old Testament where God uses some of these things as punishment for the wicked. Right? He calls on like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. We could talk about that right there. A lot of, us, a lot of people think that was a comet strike that hit like in Tunguska in Russia, where it like exploded and it was like, a, volcan- like a, a bomb going off. It was a comet. Some people think in Sodom and Gomorrah was a comet also hitting the earth and just erasing it. Uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. So that, and we see that that was something that God uses divine judgment. Also, it's been appealed to that, um, what, that kind of evil that exists in the world is because of the curse of sin. That when sin entered the world, it was broken in more ways than just us morally. A creation itself, since we were stewards of creation, right? When we stewards are broken, what's the natural consequence for what we are over, right? If you want to appeal to a sense of, you know, like the steward of a castle, if that steward becomes corrupt and evil, what's going to happen to his kingdom that he's over? Going to become broken, right? Uh, so it, it, it's along those lines. I'm very, very brushing the surface over them. But there are some answers. If you want to know, come find me afterwards for sure. Great point to bring up, though. Anything else? Anything else? Okay. All right. If you have... Oh, yeah. Yeah, what's up? What would, what would you say to someone who believes in a predestination? Yes. God, um, yes, yes. Cool. Oh, oh, okay. So, so say that last one more time. That's imp- the details are important. Predestined our future for us. Ah, yes. Okay. So uh, this is getting a little more into the theology of it, uh, which I'll, I'll touch on a little bit, but uh, that's my, we're, we're going to start going pretty quickly down with my, not my specialty. I've, I've investigated, but not to the depth of this other stuff. Uh, the question was about predestination. God predestining our future for us. So number one, You've probably, you probably heard this before, but number one, is God sovereign? That's the church word we use. You know what sovereign means? 
Okay, I see a few heads nodding, yeah. When we use the word sovereign, we mean Lord, ruling, master over all. Nothing happens that God doesn't know that happens and allow to happen, or cause to happen even. Okay? You kind of need sovereignty. If God is omniscient, omnipotent, and those two. If God is omniscient and omnipotent, yeah, he's going to be sovereign. Like, that just naturally falls out. Is, it, is God that? Yes. Does God know what we're going to do? Yeah. Do we have a choice in the matter? We feel like we do. And it says over and over, like we talk about uh, uh, over and over in the New Testament, the apostles called people, say, come, repent, be baptized. They were imploring them to come do something. Which seems like it involves some, something with us, right? Some choice, maybe. So the answer is yes. And for the other side of those, you may be asking about, what about the free will thing? Can I choose? Well, um, yeah, that's kind of there too. Wait, how can God do I don't know. I don't know. It works, though. I have faith that my God is big enough that these things that we clearly see in Scripture work. There is a way that these things work together. I just haven't figured it out yet. If y'all, one of y'all do, please find me. Call me at 3 a.m. I don't care. I want to know, okay? But I have faith that my God is big enough that he can handle my logical inconsistency from my lack of knowledge. Okay? We could talk more later if you like. It's just from my own personal musings, but again, that's not why I'm here. Okay, cool. Anything else? Anything else? This is so good. So good. Good? Good? All right. Sweet. Now on to a few more lighthearted things. All right. Next up, Kyle. I got some fuff for you. All right. So, number one, the Bible is not a science book. But if you treat it as such, you are missing the point. Boy, you're missing the point. Many of us try to treat it as a science book. Science book. Science book. I can speak English really good. All right. I'm going to read you a few things here. This is going to be just a fun little aside. Just was talk about some cool stuff. So even though the the Bible is not a science book, since kind of you know God's the author, and He kind of made science, right? I'm pretty sure that if if science is ever addressed in the Bible, it's probably right. Yeah. So when it occurs, probably should listen. I'm going to read you Psalm eight here. Just uh, just sit back, just listen. It's a it's a song. Starting in verse 1. Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children to nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set into place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. All of the sheep, the oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, 
that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So this was a song that was uh, set that, you know, in, in services back in the day, ye olden times, as I always like to say, um, they would sing. There is a verse here, verse uh, 8, the end of it. The fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. What does that sound like to you? Ocean currents. Do you know when this was written? A long time ago, okay? They didn't have oceanographers back then. In fact, ocean currents weren't really discovered until the age of exploration. You know, like the Columbus eras before that. But you know, that, that kind of time period. That's when they figured out that there were currents in the ocean that would help your ship go places faster. In fact, the guy who discovered ocean currents read this verse and said, what? In his version, it said paths of the sea. It can be translated a few. Some of your versions may be a little different. Um, paths of the sea, rivers of the sea is another version, what will say. What's a, what's a river in the sea? How can you have water in water? What? That don't make any sense. He's like, but it says it's there. And it says something about fish using them. I'm going to go off the coast here and do a little bit of looking. So he goes out there in his little boat, drops some floaty things, and notices, whoa, there's a school of whales. Why are they going that way? He goes into it, and all of a sudden, his boat gets pulled in this direction. Does some little science in and finds out that there are these massive currents that wrap around the globe like highways, Finding Nemo, you know, East Atlantic, East Australian Current, yeah. Th these highways of the sea that the fish use to travel and that we can use to travel, inspired by a song in Psalms that spoke about it. Okay, coincidence, I know. All right, let's go to another one. Leviticus 11. Oh boy, Leviticus. What are you doing to us, Lucas? We're, 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 we're in the New Testament era. Let's not go to that. Well, there's fun stuff in here. So let me read this for you. I'm going to do some uh, rapid fire here. Leviticus, just you the background, keeps the background, is the, really one of the books of the law where God was giving his people what they should and should not do to separate them from the other peoples of the land. Remember, at this time, Israel, the Hebrews, were a pretty new thing, really, on the scene of the world. Been in Egypt for a long time. I mean, you know, come on, they're, they're their own thing now. And these are things that God was telling them to do for their own good, which we now know, but also to make them different, to separate them, to show that they are his chosen people, do things that no one else did. Leviticus 11, starting in verse 31. These are unclean for you among all the swarming creatures. Whatever, whoever touches them, when they are dead, will be unclean until evening. Why is it important that if you touch a dead thing, like a dead animal, a dead whatever, in this case, what are some dangers there? Yeah, germs, you. Dead, dead bodies are gross, okay? Just going to say that. Anybody who's went, been, been hunting before knows that. Dead bodies are kind of gross. 
They didn't know what germs were. They didn't know what infection was. And if you were considered unclean in biblical days, there was a very specific thing that you had to go through that lasted some time for you to clean yourself once again. They took it in the spiritual sense. But, shouldn't you clean yourself after you handle a dead animal? Yeah. So we see here the first little inklings of God protecting his people from an unknown threat, disease, and where it comes from. Let's keep going. Verse 32. When any one of them dies and falls on anything, it becomes unclean. So not only is the animal unclean, anything it touches is unclean. What do we know about germs? Yeah, they spread. Five-second rule? It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Don't. It's not a thing. Okay? Any item of wood, clothing, leather, sackcloth, or any implement used for work, it is to be rinsed with water and will remain unclean until evening. Then it will be clean. You know how long it takes most bacteria to die on a surface that's been cleaned off, a non-organic surface? Most bacteria will die in about a day when it's not on any organic surface, like your skin. So if it's a tool, something that they're not wearing or using, they rinse it with water to get all of the excess off and then let it sit all by itself for a day. And it's, probably, it's most likely safe at that point. They didn't know that. God told them to do it. If any of them falls into any clay pot, everything in it will become unclean. Okay, sure, yeah, ew, gross. I don't want, you know, giblets in my... All right. You must break it. I break a perfectly good pot. You know how long it takes to make a clay pot? You get clay and get it wet and form it and fire it and then all that. It's a really long time. What am I going to break my clay pot for? Do you know clay is porous? You know what that means, porous? Full of tiny little microscopic holes. Do you know what likes to go in tiny microscopic holes? Tiny microscopic bugs, like germs, and, you know, rabies, and leprosy, and other nasty stuff. Clay is one of those materials that, once it gets dirty and infected, it kind of stays that way unless you cook it like fire. But you know what? God says, don't even mess with it. Just break the pot. Eliminate as much risk as you possibly can from this unseen threat. But trust me. Trust me. Do this. I love you. You don't know why, but do it. They didn't know why they did this, but they did it on faith. Any edible food coming into contact with that unclean water, so say the clay pots held water a lot, right? Say the water became unclean because something, fell, something dead fell in it, right? Will be, the water will become unclean. Any drinkable liquid in any container will become unclean. Anything one of the carcasses falls on will become unclean. If it's an oven or a stove, smash it. Don't mess with it. It is unclean and will remain unclean for you. A spring or a cistern of water containing, excuse me, a cistern containing water will remain clean. A spring will remain clean. Why is that? It's moving water. It's moving. The water moves. Nah, duh, Lucas. But think about that. Up to this time, culturally, around the world, water was viewed as a cleansing agent. Even into medieval times, doctors would wash their hands in what? 
a bowl of water over and over and over again because water was clean. And then they wonder why people kept dying. God, I'm being this historical, guys. God, here the Hebrew people were the first in history to use exclusively running water to clean their things and themselves. Running water. Why? They didn't know, but they trusted God. But God knew. And God loves his people. You can carry on through verse 39 and 40 talking about like the practices of people who butcher the animals and things like that. Um, their process it follows the same idea. We see the first health and safety practices <laughs> in history coming from the Levitical law of the Jews. God's smart. Remember that. God's smart. If you keep going further on, you'll see uh, there's another section talking about what to do with bandages from wounds. You burn them. You don't wash them and use them again. Contaminated blood. Transferring diseases via blood. You, should, you can't ever wash that stuff all the way off. Those of you who are in the medical profession, you probably know that. Blood is so hard to get completely removed from any sort of cloth substance. God says burn them. It's so cool. And you see the first quarantine practices happening with these people in Leviticus. If someone is sick, you put them by themselves away from the camp for a certain number of days. And the priest goes checks on them. If they look okay, leave them a little longer. And then come back. If they're okay, welcome them back. Again, spreading of disease. They didn't know that sometimes you're still infectious after your symptoms have disappeared. They didn't know that. God knows. Trust me. I love you. Do this. It's so cool. Gosh, it's so cool, guys. Okay. So, last thing I want to talk about. Flip over to Genesis 1. <laughs> this is my favorite part. Genesis 1. I'm an astrophysicist. I talk about astro and physics, space and stuff and working and all that. We know, because we've observed planets being formed. Yes, we found other solar systems, many of them. Over 5,000 new planets have been discovered and around new stars. Some of them gigantic, like many times bigger than Jupiter. Some of them smaller than the Earth. They're really close to the stars. You wouldn't want to go there. You'd fry, but, you know, we found them, and it's cool. So from that, we've started to develop very good models, computer models, of how we think planets form, form like scientifically. Like, what happens first, second, third, fourth planet? Yay! And then we have people, okay? Now, I'm going to walk you through, for the last thing today, the current, I looked this up today, the current model of planetary formation and the order in which it happens. From the perspective of someone standing on the planet. Okay? 
So let's say you were a cool space suit and you were standing on a, on a planet, fast-forwarding time as the whole planet was forming around you, okay? So, story time. Here we go. First thing that happens, as the star is forming, there's all this tons of rock and gas and dust and dirt and metals and stuff that are flying around in a disk. The star is just about to ignite with fusion in its core to begin shining and giving off light and heat consistently for billions of years to come. In that disk going around it is all the other leftover junk. Great, that's where we came from. We're the leftover junk of the sun. So we have a little ball of rock and dirt and gas and dust and metals and stuff that picks up like a snowball as it plows around the sun orbiting. Eventually, it gets big enough so that it's self-gravitating, meaning it turns into a sphere and it holds itself together. It gets really hot, too, because these things are smashing into each other like crazy. And you have lots of volcanism happening. Lots and lots, yeah, Vul Vulcan, Vulcanism, okay. Lots and lots of volcanic activity because the gas wants to get out and the metals want to get in, you know, dense stuff sinks, light stuff floats kind of thing, same, same thing happens. So we get this huge outpouring of gas and smoke and dirt and more smoke and the atmosphere of the planet forms. But it's so thick, you can't see your hand in front of your face. I mean, think about a burning building, right? Smoke like that, you can't see anything. It's kind of like that. Cool. Then, as the large particulates begin to settle out, given some time, you begin to notice, wait, there's water below me. That's right. Water also wants to seep up. It's lighter than metal and rock, right? As all this planet is slowly condensing, the water seeps to the surface, so much so that we actually think the Earth was once completely covered in water. There's enough of it, trust me. If you squeezed all the water out of the air, yeah, we'd all be underwater right now. It's a lot of water. Cool. Water world. An atmosphere you can't see. Give it a little bit more time, though. And the heaviest particulates sink out, and you begin to see for the first time faint light peeking through the hazy sky. And that light stays there for a few hours, about 10 hours or so, and then it's dark. And then 10 hours later, that hazy light comes back again. You don't know where it comes from, but it comes back. We know it's the sun, slowly filtering through with a very thick atmosphere right now. Next thing that happens, once the water is settled, finally we have a chance for some rock to hit rock and we get plate tectonic activity. That along with the volcanism churning up magma from, un from inside the earth, you get land getting jutting up out of the oceans as these plates grind against, against each other in subduction zones, things like that. Those of you geology people. And continents appear, land appears, islands appear. Shortly after that, enough light is filtering through that plants, the first stirrings of life, something that uses the sun as energy, evolves. Again, using the scientific models they have now. Then, over this period of time, the heaviest particulates finally settle out, and for the first time, you can see the sun. You can see where the light's coming from. This big, giant ball of gas burning billions of miles... I'm sorry, Pumbaa. 
Lion King? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. See if you're awake. And then at night, you notice it's not completely dark. There's this other little less bright white thing. Ooh, that's pretty. It's got, some, it's got like a moon kind of look to it. And then you see stars for the first time, billions of stars dotting the sky because the atmosphere is transparent now. All the heavy stuff is sunk out. And then, now that the air is clear and plants have been doing their plant thing, making oxygen, other critters pop up, like fish and bugs and lizards and, you know, people critters. You know, we come in there too later. There you go. I just laid out for you, in pretty simple terms, the current model of how planets form and the order in which it happens. Why did I direct you to Genesis 1? Well, if you're following along, you might have seen an interesting story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless, empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Hmm, Lots of water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Where did the light come from? We don't know, it's just light. Remember that hazy atmosphere where you couldn't tell there was light? You know, it was light, but you know where it was coming from because it was too thick to see. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness night. The earth is still rotating in all of this. You still have day and night. It's just you don't know where the day is coming from because you can't see out yet. It's like a flashlight into, into smoke. You can't see the flashlight, but you can tell there's light somewhere. Everything came, and then morning of the first day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between waters, separating water from water, so that God made the expanse and separated the waters under the expanse. Lost expanse. And, okay, and he called it sky. So many words there. Evening and the morning the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry land appear. He called the dry land earth. He called the gathering of the water seas. God saw it was good. Then said, Let the earth produce vegetation. Anybody seen a trend yet? Anybody caught it? Anybody caught it? Okay, I'll keep going. I'll I'll give you a chance. Trees, fruits, seeds, kinds, cool. God saw that it was good. Evening came, the morning, first day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. Let them serve as signs for festivals, for days, for years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day, the lesser light to have dominion over the night as well as the stars. Remember, the light, they were there the whole time, but we couldn't see them because the, earth, the air was so thick. But when finally it settled out, we could see where the lights came from. We could see the things that were out there, the moon, the sun, the stars. Verse 20. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created large sea creatures, Every living creature that moves and swims in the water. He also created every winged bird according to its kind. So here we, here we see the critters coming into play. And we keep going. Fifth day, land critters. And sixth day, human critters. Anyone want to take a crack at my point there? No? Our most complete modern scientific smarticles model for how planets form tells us a story of what it looks like to be on the surface of a planet 
that is being created. The account in Genesis is remarkably similar to not only what it looks like, but what it looks like for someone standing on the surface. Makes sense. It said in the beginning that God was hovering over the the surface of the watery depths. The story begins with someone standing in the earth, on the earth as it's forming around him. Take it as you will. It's really cool, though. (laughs) It's really cool. Okay. Um, I thank you for your eight minutes of extra time. So uh, with that, I'll still be here until Kyle kicks me out. So if you have anything you would like to say, anything you'd like to ask me about, I'll give you my opinions one-on-one. It's just not in the forum. That's not my purpose here. Thank you so much for your time, your attention, for your thoughts. Thank you for your thoughts in this, the ones you shared and the ones you thought yourself, because that's, that's really what we're trying to do here with this series, is think, sharpen one another. All right. With that, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll dismiss us, and you can hang out and stuff like that. All right. Father, you are truly incredible. God, every time I read through Genesis and, and see your character being displayed as powerful, so intelligent, so creative, so uh, tuned into the tiniest detail, and yet you get to us and you form us yourself. You breathe the breath of life into us, you say. Such intimate gestures. You speak to us. Give us a purpose. God, thank you for what you have done. I praise you for what you have done. And I thank you that you've given us minds to try to grasp and fathom your depths, to seek after you, to seek more of who you are, how you do things, so that we can see more of your glorious face, your holiness, your otherness, and marvel and praise you in that. Thank you for not being silent God, thank you for coming and giving us your word. Thank you for giving us each other. Thank you for giving us Christ. May we not take any of this for granted. May we be good stewards of what you have given us, specifically in this instance of our minds. God, give us a desire to dive in, ask hard questions, learn more for your glory, your honor, your praise, and for the strengthening of our faith. Bless everyone who is here, I pray, richly as you send us out to be your ambassadors in the world. Give us all a restful night's sleep tonight. May we work diligently for your glory. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right. Have a good night, guys.